0: Uh, good morning. Um, My name uh, is Todd Daly, and Katie uh, introduced me. I'll be filling in for uh, Randy. I think this is the last week when Randy is away, although I'm not entirely sure, but he will be back uh, soon. Uh, Last week, or uh, actually last month, the last time I preached, we looked at uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, The Beatitudes... And the sermon there came dangerously close to a seminary lecture, which some of you may be happy about that. Others were distressed. Uh, This time, we'll try to keep it more uh, on a sermon, on on a sermon level and a sermon basis. Uh, Before we do that, we should pray. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear you, eyes to catch a glimpse of your beauty, a mind to discern between what is redemptive and what needs to be discarded this morning, and a heart to follow after the truth. Amen. Well, imagine that you were collecting a band of revolutionaries, that you were put in charge of collecting a group of people to go out and make the world a better place by fighting injustice, working for peace, helping the poor, cleaning up our planet, helping uh, develop sustainable communities throughout the world. And before you stand, a group of the smartest, richest, most empowered, courageous individuals in the world, people with highly developed critical thinking skills, folks who are ambitious, these are the problem solvers, They're loaded with initiative. I mean, these folks look like they've walked right off the cover of Forbes magazine. Perfect resumes that speak for themselves, the one that always make themselves to the top of the pile. That is the resumes. The head of the class from the best universities in the land, impeccable list of references, and you've got your list of questions ready. You know the standard fare. Why do you want to work here? Uh, Where do you see yourself in five years? Or my personal favorite, what are your weaknesses? You know, fully expecting to hear those kinds of answers where you secretly couch uh, a strength in terms of a weakness, right? Well, I work too much. Uh, I tend to pour my heart and soul into a project. Sometimes I I, I follow through too thoroughly. (laughs) Well, we don't want you here. But at the last minute, Jesus walks into the room and he doesn't just survey the room. Uh, He sees through people. And while some remain supremely confident, others begin to squirm and look a bit uneasy. He walks over to the pile of resumes and starts by pulling them from the absolute bottom of the pile. And then addressing the whole room, he asks, is anyone here struggling with pain this morning? Anyone here overwhelmed with sorrow? Okay, go see HR, you're in. How about the powerless? How about those of you who are easily intimidated and generally unable to follow through and complete tasks? He says, I'd, show, I'd ask for a show of hands here, but I, I know that'd be a pointless exercise. But I can tell by your body language who you are. You're in, too. How about those of you who consider yourselves a complete wreck and would do anything to be made whole? Well, we need you, too. Hardly the group of world changers that we might have envisioned. But that's basically what's going on here in the first four Beatitudes in Matthew. And while they're often uh, interpreted as explicit commands to follow, they are actually a portrait of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom and the kinds of people who belong to it. We might sum up the Beatitudes, or at least these first four, by saying blessed are the needy. Favored are those who are in considerable distress, extreme pressure, and all but hopeless. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter five, it's on page 809, if you'd like to turn there in the Bibles uh, in front of you, we read the following words. Picking up in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we we looked last time at the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And in these next three beatitudes, what we see, or more specifically, what it means to be a member of the kingdom, what it means to receive the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the big idea kind of follows on from last time. In God's kingdom, divine favor rests on the spiritually needy. And God's kingdom, God's divine favor rests on the spiritually needy. And the first way we see this happening is by bringing consolation to those who mourn, by bringing consolation to the sorrowing. And while Luke also has an account of the Beatitudes, they are shorter they're, they're, they're more descript or actually less descript, and they're in a different order. Matthew takes these and switches the order a bit. In Luke, we find blessed are the poor, the hungry, and the sorrowful in this order. In Matthew, we find blessed are the poor and then the sorrowful. And he swaps these Beatitudes on purpose— to to make a specific point, and he's likely matching the words here up with Isaiah 61, where Matthew is trying to point out, is trying to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Isaiah 61, one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see the the pattern there, the poor and the brokenhearted. And this becomes even clearer in the next verse, Isaiah 61-2, where Matthew uses the exact same terms for comfort and mourn that are found in his Gospels. Uh, In the Greek version of the Old Testament, those precise words had been used earlier, at least 200 years before. They're highlighted there in, in yellow for you. We'll spare you the Greek. Isaiah is speaking words of comfort to the exiles, God's chosen people who, because of their sin, would watch and weep over the destruction of Jerusalem, having been forcibly carried away to a strange land with no temple. And no temple means no identity. This is a land of strange customs. These are the ones who have experienced unimaginable loss. And so the mourning that Matthew speaks of really can't be limited to the kind of sorrow that we might experience over sin and personal failure, though that's surely something to mourn over. In reading through uh, the church fathers and how they commented on this passage, almost unanimously, They interpret blessed those who mourn as those who are sorrowful over their own sin. And that is part of it, but there's something even more profound going on here. These are the ones who are experiencing a sorrow that transcends even the personal sorrow of failure. And yet, here comes Jesus with the audacity to proclaim these as blessed or favored. And if we stop here, we entirely miss the meaning of this verse. We can't leave out the second part. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second half of that verse is commonly referred to as a divine passive, which means that God is the only one who can provide this kind of support and relief. All that we can do is receive. All that we can do is hold out our empty hands. This acknowledges the total loss and helplessness that deep and profound sorrow often brings. This is a comfort that we can't manufacture. This is a comfort that we can't achieve through medication. This comfort is divine, and it will only be fully realized when Christ comes again. I wonder whether or not we have a problem with sorrow and grief. Not that we experience it, but how we respond to it. I think we have a tendency to want to rush people through their grief, maybe because we struggle with our own pain. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. And yes, he does say that. But we almost instinctively stumble for words of comfort when no words would be m- most appropriate. There have been a lot of sermons on Job through the years, for instance and uh, his friends who try to comfort him are um, routinely lambasted in sermons, and and they deserve the criticism. But in Job's account, in, in Job's suffering, what we often miss is what his friends got right. They sat silent with him for seven days. At the same time, however, we ought not to expect people to be over their grief in a week. Of course, there is time for comfort. But not, as Paul says later in Romans, not without having learned to weep with those who weep. Notice that grief isn't fixed here. It isn't solved. The blessing is future tense, which gives us space to mourn. And there are lots of things to be sad about. There are lots of things that grieve us. It could be the death of a dream, the death of a son or daughter that leaves a gut-wrenching hole in your soul, sending a child off to college this fall, or the military. Maybe you're filled with some regret that can never be undone. Maybe you're being abandoned by your spouse and you're paralyzed by rejection. Maybe you're grieving over a child who is running away from God, or you're afflicted with some besetting sin. Or maybe you're mourning the condition of the church and the scandals that continue to afflict it. But in a world that is marred by sin, grief is always a byproduct of love. In a world that's marred by sin, grief is always a byproduct of love. Grief, says Jamie Anderson, is all the love you want to give but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. I think for finite creatures in this world, that is an apt and profound description of grief. But Christianity would also want to say something a little bit more, for we can't forget that the one who spoke these beatitudes is also the man of sorrows, and that the one who promises comfort is well acquainted with grief. Divine love did indeed have a place to go, to the cross. And so to receive comfort in this beatitude is to be offered the consolations of Christ. Blessed are you when a fresh wave of grief unexpectedly crashes down on you, leaving you flattened and disoriented. Blessed are you when you find the well-meaning encouragement of others intolerable. Blessed are you when all you can do is sit and weep, for your consoler is Christ, and you will receive divine comfort, not just for your sake, but for the rest of the community of faith. The comfort you receive will be the comfort you give to others, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Secondly, the kingdom brings divine favor by granting sovereignty to what I've called the stepped on, which is a very loose, admittedly loose translation of meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's basically two ways to understand meek. Here. It's an attitude and it's also a position. As an attitude, to be meek means to be humble, gentle, and mild. Note that this does not mean weak or soft or diffident. We might be tempted to think of uh, George McFly in Back to the Future, right? Who cowers before Biff and does his homework for him. Um, In this this particular scene, uh, Biff comes in and finds George, you know, enjoying a soda at the soda fountain, and he comes behind him, grabs him by the head, and knocks on his head and says, hello. Hello, George, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be copying my homework? Don't you need to give this to me ahead of time so that I can take your answers and put it in my writing? Maybe you better get out of here. And so he slinks away. You're right, you're right, Biff. What am I thinking? I'll go do that right now. But there's also a meekness that is a position, particularly a position of powerlessness. And Jesus here is most likely not referring to those who are actively trying to foster an attitude of humility or those who are trying to avoid the attitude of pride, but he's speaking to the powerless the oppressed, to those who are out of options. Much like the poor in spirit, the meek are also those who stand as empty-handed beggars before God. And once again, Matthew is likely drawing on the Old Testament in Psalm 37, a psalm addressed to the underdogs, to the silent and those who are being afflicted by the wicked, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Once again, the, term, the terms that are employed in Matthew's gospel are also here match the Greek, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. They're highlighted there in yellow. In other words, Matthew is deliberately connecting this beatitude with the psalm, showing that the Messiah is now here. A new order has been inaugurated. And a more vivid picture of this powerlessness is found in Psalm 137, which begins with these words, by, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Here the exiles' instruments go silent as their captors mockingly ask them to play a song of Zion, a melody that rejoices in the greatness of their city that has just been flattened. but they can only hang their harps up as they hang their heads. They can only sit and weep. Utterly contrite, destitute, utterly defeated, not a shred of dignity remains as they're unable even to hide their tears from their tormentors. Maybe it's an image of a dog who has done something wrong, and the owner comes home, and the owner has just given it a beating, and it's waiting for another one. But note the final response uh, in this psalm. It is a plea for God to act, and it ends with a cry for Vengeance. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little one and dashes them against the rock. Did you catch the repeated word there? Um, You should, it's in yellow, I think. It's the same word for blessed that we find in Matthew, and this is known as an imprecatory psalm and it catches the rawness of emotions associated with desperation, imploring God to repay wickedness with justice. Now this doesn't mean that we condone what is being decried here, but we need to read the Psalms because it gives a voice to these kinds of complaints, in the end that they might be refined. We need to read the Psalms because they teach us how to complain. But in Matthew's time, not much has changed. God's people are still powerless. The land of Judah is occupied by another ruthless pagan power that rules with an iron fist and crucifies anyone who gets in the way, slaughtering innocent children if necessary to preserve power. Do you think Psalm 137 was heard in Bethlehem on that dark night? Happy are those who dash Roman infants on the rock. Is it any wonder that there were zealots at this time bent on armed rebellion? Should we be surprised that at least one of Jesus' disciples was numbered among them? And yet, here again, Jesus is pronouncing these blessed. Blessed are those who are humbled while on earth, says one commentator. So if you are in a position of powerlessness today, if you're currently being humbled and resisting the urge to strike back, take heart because you are favored by God and will one day inherit the earth you will one day inherit the land that cannot ever be taken away in the jewish mind see land and sovereignty and blessing go together in this context the word earth meant literally the land of israel but more generally jesus is talking about receiving a fuller possession of the kingdom Jesus is pronouncing his favor on the powerless who wait on God and trust that justice will come through God's power and not force. I think the Dominican scholar Simon Tugwell expressed this very poignantly. Blessed are those who are not in too much of a hurry to get things done and know how to wait, helpless, nailed to their cross, Against all the odds, it is truly they who will inherit the earth." What an odd message in a culture that says, no pain, no gain. Or the early bird gets the worm. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You know, survival of the fittest. In his uh, memoir entitled Muscle, Sam Fussell gives us a contemporary example of precisely this temptation, how we respond to powerlessness. Now Fussell uh, is an Oxford-educated son of two university professors of English. Needless to say, he was a bookish type. I mean, do you think there are any books in his house growing up? But he spent a year in the United States waiting to start graduate school. He actually lived in New York City and he found himself uh, constantly fearful. He found himself powerless. He was intimidated by deranged strangers. And one fateful afternoon as he's walking down a street and a man with a crowbar is walking towards him, he ducked into a bookshop, the place of safety, It's a little slice of heaven, quite frankly. And he picked up a copy of Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography and decided right then and there to become a (laughs) bodybuilder. He goes to the YMCA, starts working out fanatically, quickly moves up to free weights, quits his publishing job, moves to uh, to an apartment in Queens that he called the Bunker. He engaged in a daily cycle of eating, dieting, and working out, 70 eggs a week, pumping his body full of steroids. There he is, second on the right. In his words, he said, I went from answering the phone meekly to shouting, speak, into the receiver on the first ring. That would be a bit jolting. Instead of please and thank you, his new motto was no kindness forgotten, no transgression forgiven. He notes how he became the one who intimidated others. He once picked up one of his publishing house co-workers and threw him through the door just for fun. And in reflecting on his life, he said, and I'm quoting him now, without being fully aware of it myself, I became the kind of man I once feared and despised. I became, in fact, a bully. When he found being George McFly intolerable, he locked in on power, only to discover that he had become Biff. This is not the way of the kingdom. God's kingdom turns everything upside down." A more accurate, theologically precise way to say it is that actually the kingdom reveals that the world is upside down. And it begins, this, it, the inclusion in Christ's kingdom begins with this invitation to the hurting and the humbled and the hungry. And ever since Adam and Eve, our temptation has been to take things into our own hands, trying to achieve God's purposes by using the methods of the world. We're tempted to be like Biff in a world that only seems to understand one kind of power. We do this when we resort to more subtle and sophisticated strong-arm tactics by manipulating people or engaging in passive-aggressive kind of behavior to get our message across. But as followers of Christ, we are not to force God's will on a world, as one commentator says it, on a world that is not ready for it. But this does not mean that we become like George McFly either. Once again, to have the kingdom is to have Christ who is our model of meekness. This Jesus, who is also God in the flesh, is meek. And the only other two times that Matthew uses this word meek is actually to describe Jesus himself. Later in the book, come unto me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am meek. And humble. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as a meek king, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Matthew makes his point. This is the meek one. And finally, in meekness, not weakness, but in meekness, Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so by all worldly accounts, Christianity was deemed a colossal failure. Instead of a crown, their leader got the cross. He seemingly gave up without a fight. Followers are in hiding, and the empire marches on. Like, cue the Star Wars music, you know. But the Roman Empire has long since crumbled, while the church built on another foundation thrives and endures. So if you feel trapped or powerless or hemmed in this morning, if you are facing something beyond your control, if you've been humbled, you are blessed. You have a place in the kingdom. One day you will be given the power and the character to rule. Blessed are the powerless, the downtrodden, Blessed are the humbled. Blessed are those without connections, without options, without any strings to pull. Blessed are those who seem unable to make something of themselves, for the one who made himself nothing offers the kingdom. Finally, this kingdom means divine favor by satisfying the starving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This language of hungering and thirsting expresses a deep and intense longing. Blessed are those who are longing for and needing what is right. And now note here, there is a shift in this beatitude uh, towards an active stance or an attitude. Something we should be moving toward. Blessed are those who love God and earnestly that God's will be done. That's how it would have been heard in its first century context. These are the ones who love God and love God's will with all their heart, mind, and soul. You know, echoing Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the ones who are not being thrown off course by other earthly appetites. For these, there are no other earthly or spiritual idols to compete with God. So desire is welcome and even required in God's kingdom. We're not called to be Stoics or cold rationalists, but rather we should be people who are driven by desire so long as it is rightly directed." If we're honest, it's difficult for us to imagine a profound hunger like this in a land where it's easy to spend an entire afternoon watching reruns of Cake Wars on the Food Network. Right? We, we know how to be full, but we really don't know what it means to go hungry. But listen, I am not against culinary creativity. Like Cooking is a hobby of mine but I doubt that they'll ever have a Haiti addition to the show where the poorest of the poor make mud cookies for a living. These are made mostly of dirt with a little shortening, some salt, and occasionally, if there's any available, sugar, and they're laid out by the thousands on basketball courts to bake in the sun. And for some families, these cookies are not only their only source of income, but on any given day, that might be their only source of food. It's a necessary evil, says one mother. It hurts my heart, but we're forced to eat it. This dirt, you know, thought to be rich in minerals and vitamins, is carried in from the mountains by the truckload to a local slum at a huge markup. These people know hunger. Jesus says that those who have this kind of longing for righteousness will be filled by God. I don't have that kind of hunger for God in my life. I don't know about you. we're also confronted with this question of what it means when righteousness is stated here. And without going into any kind of lengthy discussion on what this means, there are at least a couple clarifying points I think we need to make. Uh, The first is this. We need to pay attention to the original context of this passage. Righteousness here means a concern and a desire for particular behaviors that adhere to the law or God's covenant. Remember, at this point in salvation history, Christ has not yet accomplished His work on the cross. Righteousness here means something like Torah observant. It's understood as particular behaviors and actions, and it's confirmed Seemingly, by the beatitude in verse 10, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And later on uh, in the same sermon, Jesus' statement, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So secondly, it is only later in the Apostle Paul that we find a shift from righteousness as a behavior to righteousness as a gift. We are declared righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. I know your eyes are starting to gloss over. I'll make this quick. Um, in, Jesus time, uh, in Jesus' time, this notion of hungering and thirsting for righteousness would have meant being faithful to carry out God's commands. In our day, longing for God's righteousness, we could say, occurs because we have already been declared not guilty. In our context, we're blessed when we see when we experience a deep longing for righteousness because we realize there is a huge discrepancy between our daily lives and the official legal standing we have before God as declared righteous. Either way, we can't miss the bigger point that Jesus is not lifting up those who already consider themselves as having reached this condition, much less those who think they're righteous but rather Jesus is addressing those who deeply and desperately long for it. Luke's version makes this clear by pairing each blessing with a woe. Woe to you who are full now, because you will be hungry. Woe to the self-righteous and the satisfied. Woe to those who rest on their record of church giving or church attendance or seminary education. Woe to those who look down on sinners lacking in righteousness. The hungry and thirsty don't have enough righteousness, and they know it. These are the parched souls with a ravenous appetite for God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, these are driven by a profound awareness of their own inner darkness and corruption." And metaphorically speaking, these are the ones who are hungry enough to eat mud cookies. For most of us, there is still a huge gap that remains between this legal standing with God, not guilty, and our life and actions here on earth. Though we are justified in Christ, God's favor rests upon those who long to be made whole. The smug, the satisfied, the self-righteous, they may inhabit the church, but they have no significant role to play in the kingdom. In fact, I wonder whether the clearest picture of the kingdom is really not here on Sunday mornings, but on Friday nights in the garage. I'm referring to those who are participating in Celebrate Recovery. These are the hungry and the thirsty. And Jesus says the kingdom belongs to these. Because Christ himself is the epitome of hunger and thirst. He knew both physical and spiritual hunger. In the desert, when he wept over Jerusalem, and in Gethsemane when he said, thy will be done. I think Eugene Kennedy puts it nicely. Blessed are you who risk everything to find your right place at the banquet, for you are already inside the kingdom. Blessed are you for the scrolled invitations have been sent out, and the best of the calves have been killed. The kingdom of God is a banquet, but only if you are truly hungry and thirsty for life will you have your fill. In in working through and preparing for the sermon this week, I was continually struck, and dare I say, afflicted with the images that have uh, the images of refugees, frankly, scattered around the entire world as those who epitomize helpless and hurting and hungry. Those kids are in a camp, a refugee camp, and they're, they're from Syria. Um, could I see the second slide, please? This is what's been going on at our border. And then the last slide um, shows a dad. These are the hurting and the humbled and the hungry. These are the poor and the powerless. And many of these are fleeing violence and extreme poverty. One mom from Venezuela tells a story where she was threatened by a local gang for not paying protection, and she couldn't afford it. So she left with her two children and whatever she could carry. And this story is not uncommon. Of course, we need borders. We may even need some kind of wall. Of course, there needs to be a vetting process. Of course, there will be those who try to work the system. Of course, there will be extremists who try to gain entry. But when we tear children away from their parents, when we become so jaded and cynical that we're suspicious of every attempt to seek safety and welfare in our country, when we fall back on language like infestation to describe the refugee crisis we have submitted ourselves to the rules of a different kingdom. In fiscal 2018, the United States has admitted 49 immigrants to this country. And let me be crystal clear, in face of some comments after the first sermon, this is not a Republican or Democratic issue. This is a moral issue. And so whether or not Whether or not these are deemed worthy of the kingdom of America, they are welcome in the kingdom of God, and we are too, for in God's kingdom we are all refugees.